Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for the, for the progression we've made in this book, for the chance to study it in this way, to understand it in a new way and in a better way because the Holy Spirit has been with us teaching us throughout. And Father, we, we know that within each section of this book, each new area, there'll be something waiting for us. We pray, Lord, first for the opportunity to be here and to, to not see the enemy or other things in our lives cause us to be pulled aside. We ask, Father, that as we study, that our hearts and minds will be open to it in a way that's new and different so that what we may have heard before wouldn't impede our ability to learn it in a better and new way again. And we ask, Father, that as we try to study your word in this way, in a methodical and in-depth way, that we are never lulled into thinking that the purpose is to fill our head with knowledge, but that we would fully appreciate that with what we have been given, much is expected, and we are called to live according to it and to witness to it to others. We ask for the boldness and opportunity to do that in many ways. So let us set our minds today on the text, Father, with your spirit guiding us and prepare us for that next opportunity to teach the truth concerning you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 23, we finished off the ordinances. This is the heart of the law regarding how people live in the nation of Israel. And so now the Lord is going to give Israel some promises and some instruction concerning their conquest of the promised land. Now, if you know the whole story of Exodus, if you if you cheated and you read ahead, then when we talk about promises and instructions concerning the conquest of the promised land, you should have asked yourselves, wait a minute, I didn't think they got into the promised land. I thought this generation died in the desert. Now they're going to eventually arrive at in Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 14 and find themselves on the outs with God and condemned to spend 40 years in the desert wandering. But God nevertheless gave them instructions. And it's because of these instructions that he could stand justly in condemning them in the day that he did. So let's look at what he told them before they started their trek in the desert. And more specifically, even before their first and worst sin in chapter 32. So let's look at verses 20 through 23 of chapter 23. He says, behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. What is the Lord promising? Well, in a nutshell, to deliver the people into the land safely by means of his angel. The angel, we're told, will lead Israel in the desert and then from the desert into this land that God has promised them, the land that now is occupied by the various form of Canaanites. And that's a word you can use, by the way, to sum up all of the ites that live in the land. I had a pastor used to read that list so fast, and if you weren't listening, he would sneak in Menentites. <laughs> so, the angel is going to perform two roles, fundamentally, for the sake of this plan. The angel of God, the angel that God is talking about here, will lead Israel in the desert and will protect them during this time. And secondly, he will ensure that they can enter the land safely, that they will be successful in 
infiltrating another land, a land of another people, and do so despite the fact that those people clearly won't want them to come in. Because he says, I will make your enemies and your adversaries my enemies and adversaries, and this angel will bring you safely into the land. He will completely, look, verse 23, he will completely destroy them. And then he adds in the middle of that passage, obedience to this angel is an absolute imperative. In fact, if the nation would not obey the angel that leads them, obey him fully, if they provoke him, meaning if they rebel against him, then the angel will not forgive them of that sin. And then lastly, it's told this angel has the Lord's name in him. Now, when you consider that this angel is said to have the power to forgive or not forgive sin and has the Lord's name in him, that tells us this angel is pre-incarnate Christ, which is consistent, by the way, throughout the Old Testament. Anytime you see the angel of the Lord, that phrase is a unique one in the Old Testament. It is always a reference to a pre-incarnate Christ. And in every case, I think with maybe only one exception or two, when you see that term being used in the Old Testament, it will be evident within that same context that that is a reference to Christ. How do you know that? Because there'll be a sentence in which it says the angel of the Lord said this, and then the person he's speaking to will call back to the angel with the term Lord. And it's clear from the point of view of the person watching this that they recognize this to be God himself. Or the narrator of the text will say, and then the Lord, instead of, and then the angel. So this is a pre-incarnate Christ. We're saying this is the second person of the Godhead, manifested to men in a form prior to the one he took when he was born in flesh. The Father has sent his Son to lead Israel into the promised land. There is great symbolism in that, meaningful symbolism. How does one enter into the promised land? By following Christ. By following Christ. So that if we take these words and take them now to their spiritual meaning, in the day that Israel walked with Moses, the promised land referred to a specific parcel of earth called Canaan. But it was a picture of the kingdom, the life we have in in the heavenly realm or in the kingdom to come because of our faith. So promised land becomes a metaphor for heaven or for the salvation that men can obtain through Christ. And then similarly, the angel of the Lord, i.e. Christ, led them into this promised land. Similarly, there's a picture of our entry into heaven is through Christ. It's all intentional. This is the picture God wants us to understand. We covered earlier in this book that the reason Moses himself will not enter into the promised land is that he represents the law. And so men cannot enter into the promised land by law. They had to enter in under Joshua, which is the name Yeshua, which is the name for Jesus. So it is Jesus that leads us into the promised land, not the law or Moses. Here you see that picture yet again reinforced. God says to Israel, if you obey my son, he says angel, but it is the son of God. If you obey my son, he will lead you into the promised land. In this case, literally in a physical sense, but it's also true spiritually. But notice If Israel rejects the son's leadership over them, they will be judged and not forgiven. Now, we know in the book of Numbers, this happens. I say we know, I'm assuming we all know this, but if you want to read where it happens, read chapters 13 and 14 of Numbers. And in that moment, the nation has been led to the edge of the promised land by the angel of the Lord. And then as they reach that point, the people ask for someone to be sent in to do a little reconnaissance 
and to determine if the land is as good as the angel said it would be. In that reconnaissance, the spies of Israel come back with a false report. They give a false report. Their report is lies. They are not giving a bad report in the sense that they only choose to notice the bad things. They're making stuff up. They make up the fact that there are Nephilim in the land. They make up the fact that there's people that are giants that are going to kill us if we go in. We know they're making it up because it's called a bad report in Hebrew. The word bad means false. But we also know it's bad because the two honest men say nothing of that stuff. They say, what are you talking about? It's great. We'll do fine. Come on in. They don't see those things. These are guys who come back with a lie because they themselves fear for what will happen when they come up against the Canaanites. They fear because they do not believe in the promises that have been made to them concerning Christ's ability to destroy. They do not believe the word. And by their lack of faith in the word, they are condemned over their unbelief. They fail to believe in the angel of the Lord who led them up to that moment and set them on the brink of entering into the promised land. So they failed to, to put it simply, they failed to trust in Jesus. They failed to believe in God's promises. And as a result, that entire generation of Israel is judged and barred from ever entering the promised land. God says, you know what, Moses, why don't we just kill all these people? And Moses says, you know, if you do that, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, you led your people out of Egypt just to kill them and it's not going to reflect well on you. And so God says, OK, you know what we'll do? We'll let them die slowly. They're still going to die. The judgment didn't change. The manner of death is all that changed. They don't die instantly. We'll let them die slowly. Then people won't blame me. Then he ends up by saying, but I assure you, none of them will enter my rest. None of them will enter the promised land. So the entire generation of Israel is barred from forgiveness and from entering the land. What they're doing is repeating a sin that Jesus himself describes later in the Gospels, the unforgivable sin. And the unforgivable sin is a unique one that can only be committed when you are in the presence of the Lord. Because the unforgivable sin is to look at the Son of God and to reject his works as not true, as not Genuine. It happened in Jesus' first coming to earth. It's happening here in this moment in his very presence before this people. That's why you and I cannot commit that sin today. No one can commit an unforgivable sin for their salvation when and if it comes would wipe away any sin that preceded it and any sin that comes after it. So you cannot commit that sin now. Israel could in the generation that saw Jesus on his first coming and this generation that sees it now in the desert. And there's tremendous connection between these two events. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, gives us the most detailed commentary on this moment out of the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19, we read this. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So he says, 
Those who have become partakers of Christ are those who hold fast the beginning of assurance firm until the end. He is not giving you a prescription for being saved. He's giving you the definition of who is saved. The ones who are true Christians don't lose that confidence and assurance when they come up to the brink of the promised land and then shrink back from the prospect of entering. The opposite is true. As you reach that moment in your life, you become more confident of what follows. You become less fearful of death, not more fearful of death. And he says to the one who would act the part for a time, but as the moment of truth draws near, they shrink back. They're proving themselves to be someone else rather than the one they claim to be. It's not a test that we're supposed to apply to others. It's the test he's asking these people to apply to themselves. It's not the way by which we root out unbelievers amongst us. That's not even something that we're called to do. But it is a way of waking up that self-deceived unbeliever and causing them to think twice about what it means to be in Christ. That's why the next thing the Hebrew writer says is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And he uses this people group as an example of those who can see wonderful things, follow God in marvelous ways, be exposed to him in unprecedented levels, and still not have saving faith in the end of all of that. Which is a way of saying, don't make the mistake of thinking that your experience and your exposure and your association with church people or churches in general is the thing that holds you to Christ. It's not. And if you think your experience has been a compelling one, imagine what theirs was like. But still, it doesn't substitute for saving faith. Now, this moment, as I said, has an interesting parallel to later days. The generation of Moses' day was judged in the desert for rejecting Jesus. The generation of Jesus' day was judged for rejecting the Messiah as well. When Jesus came to Israel in his first coming, he told them that if they blasphemed the Holy Spirit then that generation could not be saved. And when the nation saw Jesus perform miracles and prove himself to be Messiah, they saw wondrous things. They saw more impressive things than even the nation of Israel saw. And in those things, he proved himself to be who he said he was. And yet, that generation misjudged him, declared him to be Satan, and as a result, they committed that sin. And they could not be forgiven. And when Jesus comes again in his second coming, it will be for the Jews of tribulation. You know that if you studied Revelation with me, perhaps you knew that already. So when the Jews of tribulation cry out for Jesus, according to Zechariah 12, that cry is the trigger that brings the Lord back for them. The future generation of Israel will only be rescued when they finally call out in faith for that one that their ancestors rejected. So Jesus comes to Israel, they reject and die. Jesus comes twice to Israel, they reject and they die. Jesus will come a third time for Israel when they receive him according to the Holy Spirit. Only by faith will they enter the promised land. Let's read 24 through the end. He says, you shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the peoples among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you 
so that they will drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So this is part of what the Lord delivered to Israel when he promised them that this angel would have the power to bring them into the land. He describes in detail the way they are going to see the Lord perform this work. How as they enter, that they will be removed from sickness. They will have strength, in other words. They will not be miscarrying in the barren land. That they will be able to fulfill the full number of their days. They won't die early. These are all promises to the strength of the people as they enter into a difficult place in which they have to start up a whole new civilization. So they're being promised physical strength, protection from the things that might have caused them to die prematurely. Then he says that when they get into this land, they will have the terror of the Lord going before them as like hornets. There's no evidence in Scripture that God ever used hornets in the way he described, but that doesn't mean he didn't. It just means we don't have any reference to it. It could be that he's speaking metaphorically here. If you've ever seen someone, even in a movie, for example, attacked by bees, think of the way they typically respond. They run like a crazy person because they need to to get away. They have no defense. They have no thought of trying to stand their ground. They're completely in a flight mode. That's the sense he wants them to have of what they'll see from their enemies when God is working with them to create this terror. They will, ahead of their movements, push people out of the way. But then God says... You should be ready or be prepared for this to take some time. Not as a reason because I can't do it faster, not because I don't have the power to do it, but because there is goodness in doing this slowly. If God were to evacuate the entire land of Canaan overnight, it would still take some time for the nation of Israel to make its way in and settle it. And if there had been no people in the land at all, the fields that were already prepared would have overgrown with weeds and other vegetation. The wild animals that are being kept in check by the civilization that was preventing them from overtaking the land, they would have grown in number and in power. The people would have had a much harder job in settling the land. And so he says, be prepared for a slow, steady, methodical pace. Don't let that pace fool you into thinking that somehow we aren't capable of finishing the job or that you should give up halfway through because it doesn't seem worth it to you. If you know anything about the history of Israel as they did move into the land under Joshua and later, that's exactly what they did. They started making compromises with who they would fight and who they wouldn't fight. They saw a bit of the land is good enough, and why do we need to bother going after the rest of it? And they immediately began to compromise, make covenants, and in some cases, serve other gods. And that was obviously something God knew was going to happen. It's indicative of a people who have this stubborn, stiff-necked quality that Scripture describes. Notice in verse 31, the boundary. He defines the boundary of the promised land. He does it here and he does it again in Joshua. And notice the boundary. It is from the Red Sea, that's current day western border of Israel, to the Sea of the Philistines, which takes you up to Damascus. So northern boundary would be around the Damascus area of Syria. And then to the wilderness of the river Euphrates. Now that takes you as far east as current day Baghdad. If you were in the Revelation class, you remember we looked at this in that point, too, because when Israel comes into this land in the kingdom, they will finally in that day receive this full allotment that's been promised. 
But if you know history, you know they've never had this up till now. Never. Even at the height of their kingdom under Solomon, they never achieved anything close to this kind of territory. Which tells us that the promise that God has made to Israel has yet to be fulfilled, therefore it must still be coming. For his word would never have gone out and then failed in this way. So this is a promise that they never actually obtained. Now, why is God at the end of 23 saying, you're about to go with me, I'm about to lead you, I'm about to send the terror ahead of you, you're going to get this land, and then they didn't actually get it. Why? Because they compromised with the people in the land. Because they failed in their duties to follow God in their full heart. Because they started serving other gods. In other words, this promise was conditional on an obedient people. And without the obedience, the promise never was realized. When that future Israel enters that future land in the kingdom, we know from the Old Testament prophets that they come in fully obedient. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 that they will not anymore say one to another, know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will be a 100% converted, 100% saved, 100% glorified Israel that can fully obey. And as a result, fully receive the promises God made to them in this day. But until then, they have only had a taste and a portion And then, even still, under duress, under judgment at times. Thus ends the ordinances of the law. They've now been given the order to go forth with what they have and to do it in faith. Now, having delivered that, the next division of the book of Exodus is about to begin. And it starts with this official covenant ceremony that brings the nation of Israel and the Lord into this powerful covenant. Now, this is a fabulous part of the book to me because the writer of Hebrews, which we've already gone to today, we're going to go back to him a couple times today, He takes this moment and he builds it out into great detail in his letter to explain the new covenant. So we're going to look at this moment and the cutting of this covenant as a framework for understanding covenants generally and more specifically the new. And see how these two are tied together. Let's start in chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Famous last words. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In verse 1 of chapter 24, the Lord commands Moses to return up the mountain to meet with the Lord again. Now, if you've been keeping track of Moses' travels up and down, this is his fourth time up the mountain. So in the prior moment, Moses was down with the people. Now he's called to go up and meet with the Lord. And God calls for Moses to be accompanied by 70 elders the 70 elders that were appointed when his father-in-law came to him in Midian and said, you know, this isn't going to work well. You need to get help. And then by Aaron, his brother, 
and then Aaron's two oldest sons. And we last saw these two gentlemen when they were holding up Moses' arms in the battle. These men, all of them, are to serve as witnesses for the moment of the covenant. Now, why are they chosen? Well, they're chosen for very specific reasons. First, the 70 elders are the leadership of the people of Israel. They represent the people. Aaron is going to be the beginning of the priesthood of Israel. The priesthood of Israel is going to be called to officiate in the tabernacle in the sacrificial system that's being established in this law. They are the agents of Israel, therefore, to carry out the law on behalf of the people. And they are present in this moment to serve as the first in an unbroken line of witnesses of Israel who can testify to the covenant. Because even today, the only tribe of Israel we can still identify within the nations of the world and within the people of the world are those who have descended from the tribe of Levi. And we can only find them, the priestly tribe, because their names are a key to their identity. None of the other tribes have names that are so clearly identified with their tribal ancestry as the tribe of Levi. So when you see someone today who has a last name of Levi, L-E-V-Y, or Levin, or Levinson, or Cohen, or Cohn, those are all priestly names of the tribe of Levi. So during the tribulation that will come, we're told that the temple or a tabernacle will reemerge on the Temple Mount in the time of the tribulation. That will allow for a sacrificial system to begin again in those seven years. The Jews of the world will flock back to that system and will choose to be a part of it. And they will then be reestablishing those parts of the law, of the covenant that's being made here. And in that moment, the priesthood will reemerge from among the descendants of Levi. That's the reason, I believe, why that tribe has maintained its identity despite others losing it. It's so that they'll be there when the time comes to perform their priestly responsibilities. They then become that unbroken line of representatives or witnesses to this covenant in the form of the priesthood in the temple. Moses' purpose is totally unique from the rest. Moses serves as the only one who can approach the Lord. Now, we've watched as Moses has moved back and forth between the nation of Israel at the base of the mountain and the Lord up at the top of the mountain in the cloud. And that moving back and forth, I want you to visualize it if you can in your mind as, as if you're down in the people, down looking up. You see this process of God calling Moses up and Moses having to come back down. And Moses has got to go back up and he's got to come back down. God's got to tell him something. And he's got to come back and tell it to us. And then we say something, he's got to go back and tell it to God. And there's this obvious process of communication that's taking place that tells us that God is requiring his people to work through the services of this mediator. God talks to Moses, Moses talks to the people. And God worked through this restriction, not out of necessity in this moment. Moses was no more holy or no less sinful than any other human being on the earth in that day. So he's not specially qualified to enter into God's presence more than the other people would have been. He's just chosen by God to serve that purpose. But that begs the question, why did God want to work that way? Well, the answer to that is God wanted to teach a lesson about how men obtain a relationship with him. Man's sin creates a necessary barrier between himself, between us and the Lord. It's a barrier that no one can cross by himself. He can only cross or bridge that gap through a mediator. Notice in verse 2, it says, Only Moses could come near to the Lord. Now, men in general can know of God and can acknowledge his existence. Men can even see physical manifestations of God, of his presence, of his power. Pharaoh saw it. The nation of Egypt saw it. 
The unbelieving world, in other words, men in general, can see God at times when he makes himself manifest. Men may even hear from God. There's plenty of examples in the Old Testament of unbelievers like Pharaoh hearing from God. But men may not come near to God, whether physically or spiritually, apart from a mediator. Before Moses and these other men approach the Lord to worship, notice Moses first goes to the people in verse 3. So they haven't gone up the mountain yet. But he goes first and he delivers the entire words of the ordinances. So at this point, Moses repeats everything we've studied through the Ten Commandments and the ordinances of Israel. He delivers that to the people. And then all the people speak as if with one voice, declaring, we'll do everything the Lord has spoken. And with that declaration, they acknowledge their willingness to enter into the covenant and to do the law. Now, as we've already discussed, the people couldn't keep their own word. So the penalties of the covenant were assured. And those penalties are largely outlined in other books of the Torah, but they're there. But at this point, it's now being established. Two parties have made agreement. They're saying we are willing to come together. And it is being established not only for this generation, but for all generations to come in Israel. This is not a covenant between certain people and God. This is a covenant between a nation and God. So anyone who comes into that nation at any point then, afterward, or into the future are bound by this covenant. Anyone born into the nation is already party to the covenant on day one. At this point, we watch the covenant ritual begin in which this agreement is formally established. First, Moses records the covenant. We see him writing down all the words. Secondly, Moses builds an altar and stands up 12 pillars. Why are there 12 pillars being set up? The pillars represent the 12 tribes of Israel to represent the nation standing in that moment accepting these terms. Those 12 pillars become a practical way to do that, given that you have 2 million people standing around. You can't bring all 2 million people up and around this altar. So in practical terms, we use a substitute, something that stands for the people. The second thing he builds is an altar. Now, the altar, we already remember, has one and only one purpose, right? Why do we build altars? Only for sacrifice. It's only got that one purpose. An altar means a sacrifice must take place. So he's actually preparing to make a sacrifice when he puts up this altar. Now, covenants in general were agreements established in blood. That's what made them unique. In fact, covenant, the word means to cut, as in to cut meat. So the symbology of blood in the ritual is very important to the establishment of this agreement. That a life has been poured out in order to establish this covenant, and should either party break the terms of the covenant, their life will be poured out likewise. So we're saying, I promise on my life to keep the terms of this agreement. Furthermore, the blood of the sacrifice of whatever animal is killed in the process, that blood is applied to each person in the agreement, marking them with this blood to indicate their agreement with the terms of the covenant. Today, we do a different thing, thankfully, I guess. We don't do some bloodletting in the office of our real estate agent as we sign our papers to buy our home, right? We just put our name on the line and then they notarize it and they stamp something on it. That's the effect of saying you agree formally. In this day, they use blood and they sprinkle blood on both parties. In the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember back in Genesis, in the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord made an agreement with Abraham, but it was a one-way agreement, a one-way covenant in which only God himself took on any requirements to do anything. Abraham had no requirements. Abraham 
had nothing to do to keep the covenant. It was coming to him with no requirement on his part. So the way that covenant was cut or formed, you see the Lord pictured as a torch in an oven moving through bloody pieces of meat so that the blood of the animals was on God. But Abraham never had to do that. That signified that only God was bound by the terms of that agreement, not Abraham. But now in this scene, Israel and the altar are both sprinkled with blood. Two sides in this agreement. The people are obligated to keep their part as they're sprinkled. The Lord is obligated as signified by that place of worship, the altar signifying God. Then finally, once more, Moses reads the covenant to the people. And once more, they agree to all that was written. And then Moses says, well, by the blood of this covenant, you've just entered into a covenantal relationship with the Lord. Now, in this scene, you're going to find some powerful and some important pictures of the covenant that God later brings both to Israel and to the church, that being the new covenant. And the definitive commentary on this moment is found again in the book of Hebrews. This now in chapter nine. So let's take a little time in chapter nine of Hebrews, chapter nine, 11 through 20. And let's understand the symbolism and the significance of what you see in this moment and how it's applied to the new covenant. Reading there first, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. If you want a complete explanation in this passage, I direct you to the Hebrew study you have available online. But let's address a few points as they apply. First, the writer is drawing a comparison between Moses and Christ, one as a mediator of the old, one as a mediator of the new. Because he's doing that, we need to go back and consider all the things Moses did and how he did it and look for the parallels into the new covenant. First, Moses' role as a mediator was what? What did it look like? It was him bridging a physical gap. The people were down here. The Lord was up here. They couldn't get to him. He wasn't coming down to them. So Moses was the guy that kept walking between them. So he would go up to meet with God. He would come back down to meet with the people. How did the people gain benefit from Moses acting in that role? Well, first, Moses connected the people to God. He carried the people's agreement up to God. He carried the Lord's assurances back. Secondly, 
Moses was God's representative to invite the people into a confession of agreement with the word of God. Moses commanded the people to agree to the covenant. He offered them the chance to accept what they heard. He delivered the word of God to them so that then they could respond to it. If they violated what they heard, then they would have broken the covenant and they would be judged as unrighteous. And if the people obeyed all that the Lord spoke, then they would be considered righteous, which we know was impossible. Then lastly, Moses sprinkled both parties with blood. That was another role he played. And in doing that, what did he do? By his application of blood, he established the agreement in blood, giving it force. So why did God choose to put himself on a mountain? He could have met them on a plane. He could have said, I'm going to stand way over here. You guys are going to stand way over there. And Moses just has to walk on level ground back and forth. But no, he wanted to be up high and wanted the people down low. And in that, he had the imagery of separation, not only by distance, but of height. And the Lord, having done that, is reinforcing a truth that men need to know about mediators reaching to God in heaven. Moses was this mediator and he bridged the gap, but he couldn't bridge the spiritual gap. He was there to bridge a physical gap. Moses, for example, couldn't have gone to heaven if that's where God had chosen to stay. And as a result, God is showing a physical picture that is representing a spiritual picture. In order to reach God in heaven, we can't rely on a human being to do that, not in the sense of a normal man. We need someone who has the power of going into the heavenly realm and being a mediator for us there. Someone who could pass a test of sinlessness because you have to be sinless to enter into that place of God, into the presence of God in heaven. So Hebrews tells us Jesus acted as that greater mediator for that greater covenant. How did we benefit from his mediation in the way that Israel benefited from Moses' mediation? Well, first, he descends to the earth to deliver the news of a covenant to the people who are below. He traveled the distance from God's heavenly place And this mediator made the trip down and he made the trip back up, just as Moses did. Paul explains this in Ephesians 4.8. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, well, what does it mean? Except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. So Jesus, according to Paul, fulfills the picture of a mediator by his very movement of coming down from a high place where God is to a low place where men are. And then he turns right around and goes right back up to that high place where God is. Why does Moses have to get a workout going up and down a mountain for a while? Because God needed this picture to be formed in how he acted as a mediator as well. Secondly, how does he benefit us as a mediator? Well, just like Moses also delivered the word of God and called us into an agreement with it. The Lord delivers this new covenant and commanded men to repent and believe in him. But unlike Moses, the Lord served that purpose in a very unique way because Moses had to travel up to God and then move back to men to communicate the word and ask them for agreement. Jesus did that once physically, but he continues to do it now, even without having to make that physical trip over and over again. The new believer of tomorrow is not invited into the covenant by yet another coming of Christ, unlike the way Moses had to physically keep coming back and forth. Jesus is the Word. So the Word and His Spirit living in us is that ambassador 
for his physical presence, that substitute, which is always present on the earth and bringing that news to everyone on a continual basis. Always preaching the covenant, always inviting the agreement. Romans 10.5 through 10.8. Paul says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can you see more clearly what Paul's talking about in Romans 10? He's actually alluding back to Moses's role as mediator, going up and coming back down, going up and coming back down. And in that earlier covenant, that was needed for the people to receive what God was offering. And in that earlier covenant, what was righteousness? Righteousness was defined as living the law perfectly. But in the new covenant, righteousness is not defined like that. Righteousness is defined as faith alone. And as Paul says, how then are we to be joined to this new covenant? We don't get there by seeking someone to go up to heaven for us, get it and bring it back down or to go down and bring Christ back up from the grave. We don't work in that way. He says the benefit of Christ's mediation is available simply by this confession of our mouth. We don't wait for someone to come deliver to us a person who can tell us about the covenant. All we do is confess in faith and the application of that covenant is made real to us immediately. By Christ's word, we are already near God. We don't need someone to carry it for us. Finally, Christ's blood. Moses took blood and applied it. Christ took blood and applied it. He applied his own blood. Notice covenant, that word in Greek can be translated in two other ways, synonymously. The word covenant can also mean testament. The word testament can also be translated will, like your last will and testament. So he's using that picture. He's saying, notice that a will is not in effect until the death of the one who makes it. You have a will right now, I hope, but it's not taken effect until you die. So a covenant slash testament slash will does not go into effect until the death of the one who made it, he says. So the new covenant or new testament required a shedding of blood so that it could take effect. And Christ's will, his testament, is that his children will receive his inheritance. How does his will come into effect by the death of the one who made it? Now his children are receiving an inheritance. Now, here's why Paul says that you have already been seated in the heavenly and have already received your inheritance. What he's saying is if the death has happened and the will has become effective because of the death, then the transfer of that inheritance has already been made to his children. And the only reason you haven't seen it is because the executor of the will hasn't actually had you meet face to face and deliver the inheritance to you. You're just waiting for that moment when you get there. So you've already received an inheritance by virtue of Christ's death and the covenant that provided for that inheritance. So Jesus's blood was the one that was sprinkled. But in his case, his blood wasn't sprinkled on an earthly tabernacle or on an earthly altar. Hebrews said his blood was sprinkled on the heavenly tabernacle when he ascended. Secondly, because it's a one way covenant, it doesn't depend on our performance. It doesn't depend on our keeping of any terms. It's like the Abrahamic covenant in that respect. It's a one way covenant. It's granted to us then the blood is applied by Christ to the temple, to the altar in heaven, 
And then we symbolize that rather than having to actually see it applied physically. We don't, in other words, have to die and experience the bloodletting of our own body. We can simply enjoy that symbolically through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the reenactment of the Last Supper observance in which we have the wine and the body. The wine is blood and the bread is the body. John's Gospel, John 6:53. Jesus explained that. He said, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, and so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. And of course, some in his day got really upset at that. They thought he was speaking of cannibalism, but we know that he was speaking symbolically about how in faith we receive those things. Ephesians 2.13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the covenant of the law has been enacted between God and his people. The nation of Israel now forever bound to the Lord in that way. And they are called to live a law that will forever distinguish them from the rest of the people on the earth. They're going to be judged very strictly by this law and it will be the cause of their temporary downfall. I say temporary in the sense of eternity. And it will be the basis ultimately for their rise again because this covenant, though it's not the means for personal salvation for anyone, it is the way by which God will accomplish remarkable things within the nation of Israel, not only in the earlier day of Moses, but also in more importantly in a future day. This is all alluding to things we talked about in the Revelation study. Verses 9, 9 through 18, next. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So let's get the order of events here properly. He signed the covenant with the people. Then Moses and those other men begin to ascend the mountain to meet with God as they were directed. There they're going to see the God of Israel. Now the question should immediately come to your mind, what did they see? And as with any scripture you study, you have to interpret a passage in light of the rest of the Bible. You never want to forget what else is in the Bible when you look at one passage. So in this passage, you see things like they saw God. Well, you can't assume that this means they saw him in a way that contradicts what other scriptures say about man's ability to see God. You can't assume any kind of interpretation here that would contradict with other scripture. Because in other cases, you read this. First John 4.12, John says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John declares, No man's ever seen God, 
at any time. Well, that's got to include this time, because certainly John knew about it when he wrote those words. Later in this same book of Exodus, we read this, Exodus 33:20. The Lord's speaking. He says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God himself says to Moses, you can't see my face and live. So if Moses couldn't see God's face and live, and remember, Moses is the only one who could come near God, then certainly these other men who couldn't even get near God did not see God, at least not in that sense. So these men saw something, but whatever they saw, we know it never included seeing God in any true, full sense, at least not seeing his face, and they were never very near to him in the first place. We can get a clue of what we think he might have actually shown them in verse 10. Because in verse 10, you see a reference to his, quote, feet. Well, God's all spirit, we know from Scripture. So anything you see at all is a anthropomorphism. It's a manifestation of God in a way that appears to be physical, but is not actually so. And that appearance is made possible by the Shekinah glory of God. So just as the Shekinah glory of God can appear as a dove, a lighting on Christ, or a burning bush, or now feet, it can come in forms as God chooses, but none of them are God. They are manifestations of his glory so that men have something they can appreciate. You can safely assume that if the men saw the feet and the pavement, that they were in a position of prostrate fear, right? And that's common. Anywhere you see in Scripture, I mean, angels make men fall down in fear. You can imagine what it must have been like to be in God's presence. So why do they describe his feet and his pavement? My guess is because that's the only thing they could see from the position they had on the ground. And from that vantage point, they talk about the pavement and and so on. So in verse 11, the men are given a chance to eat and drink in God's presence. That meal is another important moment of a covenant ceremony. Covenants are concluded with meals using the meat that was sacrificed. And that's a sign that both parties are now allies. You don't sit and eat with your enemies. You sit and eat with your friends. So by this covenant, we now have no more enmity between us. And at this point, the covenant ritual ends and the next phase of the giving of the law is ready to begin. Just to clarify some of the motion of the movement here, Moses would have escorted the men back to the camp of Israel. He tells them, you all stay here now. Don't come back up. If you have any trouble, just see Aaron. He'll take care of everything you need. Bad idea, Moses, as it turned out. Then Moses and Joshua head back up the mountain together for this fifth time now as they go up. Joshua will only accompany Moses for part of the trip. If you look at verse 15, after verse 15, you never hear Joshua mentioned again. So it's probably a safe assumption that somewhere between 14 and 15, Moses leaves Joshua. And then he goes up to the mountain and we're told he waits, Moses waits, for six whole days, just sitting up there, waiting. And then finally on the seventh day, God calls him in to the glory. And then he's in that cloud for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, from the vantage point of the people on the ground, they don't know he's gone up there for 40 days or 40 nights. In fact, it's a total of 47. So for 47 days, he's gone. And they don't know that it's only 47. In fact, they wonder when and if he's ever going to come back. And all they know is the fire's consuming the whole mountain. How do we know he didn't die in the fire? And, of course, that story picks up again in chapter 32 when they fail a very bad test. And that's how you have to understand the 40. The number 40 in Scripture is a number that denotes testing or trial. And who is being tested by the 40 days of Moses on the mountain? It's not Moses. It's the people who are behind waiting for him to come back, and they fail this test. So 
as we conclude tonight, for chapters 25 and 31, we're going to study the description of the tabernacle and the priestly duties. We're not going to get into that tonight except for a quick introduction that opens the chapter, verses 1 through 9. And the study is going to move, as I said, fairly quickly through these chapters. We're going to look at the details of the tabernacle long enough to get a good sense of it, and we'll show pictures of it in here at times. But our main focus is going to be on how the tabernacle reflects Christ and the heavenly tabernacle, and other things. It actually symbolizes a number of different things. With the last minute or two of the night, let's just look at the beginning of chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and this is from within the cloud, obviously. This is the beginning of those 40 days. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram's skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I'm going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So why does the Lord command Israel to build this structure? Its purpose and its function are intimately connected to the law that's already been given to Israel. The covenant Israel now finds itself in demands perfection to those ordinances. Those ordinances, which include the first ten commandments, are strict And they're unforgiving. There's no wiggle room in those things. So even one violation of even one of those laws results in the breaking of the covenant. And remember, it's not a covenant with individuals. It's a covenant with a nation. So if even one citizen broke even one rule, even one time, the whole nation has broken the covenant. That's just how impossible it was to keep this covenant, right? And the breaking of a covenant means what? Death of the one who broke it. So God is now presenting to Moses the plan for a place and a system by which Israel could address their sins under this covenant without facing the destruction. The terms of the covenant itself, in other words, are providing for a manner of atonement which is going to address the sin of Israel. Were it not so that this was incorporated into the covenant, then there would have been no way for the Lord to address the sins of the people. Do you notice that even in the giving of the covenant itself, first you find law, then you find agreement, then you find a provision for eventual sin under that agreement. God knew sin would come and he's already preparing to address it. So the tabernacle then is a meeting place where God can dwell among men. But that meeting place is also a place of sacrificial atonement. Putting those two together makes clear meeting God requires an addressing of sin first in the lives of the people. So the opening of this chapter just gives us a chance to note the supply of the project. The material for God's house comes from the people. Where do they get all this stuff? From the Egyptians. From the Egyptians. So the contribution will come from every man whose heart is moved. Now, what would move a man's heart to do what God's asking? Well, clearly the Spirit would move the man's heart, right? The Spirit of God moving amongst His people will move them to want to provide for the work that God has intended to do. That has always been the way God works. God's work 
never languishes due to a lack of hearts motivated to support that work. In fact, I think it's fair to say that you can determine where God is working by where hearts are being moved to support that work. That is not a perfect rule, of course, because men may be prompted to fund works for ungodly reasons, not merely because God moves hearts. But as a simple rule, if you're endeavoring to conduct ministry and that ministry depends on a provision made possible through others, then match your work to the support you receive. In our little ministry, that's our basic rule. We spend what we got. No more and sometimes a little less, but not necessarily less. Our goal is not a bank. We don't want to store it. Our goal is not to go in debt. But the point is, if we say we need to do something that takes a huge amount of money and we don't have a huge amount of money, then self-evidently that's not what we're supposed to go do. It's not that we have to go find a way to get the money. We say, wait a minute, God would have brought us the money if that's what we were supposed to go do. Just flip the equation around. God funds what he has intended to work. We do the work that our money allows us to do. Self-evidently, we believe that's following God's will. That doesn't mean you can't have big dreams or desires, but it does mean that if you let your dreams and desires get ahead of the work of the Spirit, you'll start funding your own work. Now, in this case, the Lord desired to perform a significant work, one of great importance and wealth, and that was to reflect the glory of God. Last thing, verse 9. In that verse, you have the most important clue to understanding the entire study we will endeavor to undertake on the tabernacle. He says, everything is a pattern. The tabernacle itself is built according to the pattern, or you could use the word blueprint, that God is providing for Moses. But that word is alluding to way more than just strictly how you're going to build this structure. It's saying that the tabernacle itself is a pattern and a picture of others. It is a picture of Christ. It is a picture of Christ's redemptive work. In fact, you guys are going to be amazed, I think, at all the pictures of Christ contained in this structure. It is unbelievable how much there is. Secondly, the tabernacle is a pattern for salvation by the way you enter into the Lord's presence. It is a picture of the Gospels themselves, the four Gospels. It is a picture of the church. It is a picture of the kingdom. And it is a pattern of what does stand currently in heaven. You know how when you go to build a big shopping center or a big new building, they will make these little tiny models and they set them out so that you can see what the big building will eventually look like. The tabernacle was a tiny little model of what's actually standing in heaven. So we're going to study all of that tabernacle construction in earnest when we come back and and meet again. So let's, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing us back tonight to study. But thank you, Lord, for the insight that you've given us to know that Christ is our mediator and that we stand here today in a covenant made possible by his blood and that he, Father, did the work, he made the distance, he communicated the truth, and he paid the price. And we simply receive all of that grace. Thank you, Father, for that gift. And thank you, Father, for the glory and the honor it is to carry it out to the world in this time that is yet still today. And we pray that today would last long enough that we may make the impact you've intended for each of us to make and that we would be faithful and and diligent in that service that you've appointed. Let us come back next week, Father, still ready to learn and in that day ready to, to be guided by what we learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.